and welcome to another Dairy Dialogue podcast, this one being number 59. It also feels like it's week 59 of this cold, and sub-freezing temperatures here in Scotland definitely don't help with that. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and that's enough moaning for one show, or maybe I'll moan a bit about something else later, who knows. It's been a pretty quiet week here, which maybe is a good thing. I've been inundated with people wanting to meet at FIE in Paris in a couple of weeks, which would be great were it not for the fact that I won't be there. So I anticipate a lot of phone interviews over the next week or so, and all of the wonderful technical issues that that involves. Before we take a look at this week's news, and again, there's a lot of it, I'll mention who we have on the show this week. And we have three guests for you this time. We spoke to Ola Elmquist, Executive Vice President, Processing Solutions and Equipment at Tetra Pak, about the company's cheese production facility in Poland. Anna Jewell, founder of Cheese Journeys, about the company's cheese tourism operations. And Mark Van Newland, Program Director at DSM, about trials of the methane inhibitor Bovair. We also have a weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from INTL FC Stone. And so, as Thanksgiving looms in the US and Black Friday along with it, it's been a busy week on the news front. Arla farmers are looking to triple their reduction in emissions. A court in the US has given Dean Foods approval to continue with normal business operations. In the Netherlands, DSM is taking over another Dutch company with ties to the dairy industry, and that's CSK. Our packaging expert, Jenny Eagle, has been very busy writing about Nanopack's active food packaging, which can extend yellow cheese shelf life by up to 50%, as well as on Tetra Pak securing third-party certification for its sugarcane-derived packaging. Chobani has launched some dairy creamers and oat-based alternatives, CME Group in the U.S. is launching block cheese futures and options. Illy has signed a strategic partnership with 13 multinationals. The EBRD is looking for a consultant to help improve the dairy sector in Jordan. And in the U.K., Muller is removing all plastic straws from its school milk by 2020. In Australia, Maxim Foods has launched a food service division. And a lot of companies with connections to dairy have joined the 4 Evergreen Alliance to promote fibre-based packaging in circular economy launches. And there are many more stories which you can read on DairyReporter.com. Alright, let's get on with the show. Our first guest today is Ola Elmquist, who is Executive Vice President, Processing Solutions and Equipment at Tetra Pak. A couple of weeks ago, we carried a story on a 25 million euro investment in the company's site in Poland for cheese solutions. And before Ola tells us about the facility, he gave us a bit of background on Tetra Pak's operations. We provide the food industry with a lot of different solutions. We have as a business, we have basically three business legs. It's food packaging and it's services, I mean, the the, the after-sales services for food manufacturers, and then it's the food processing solutions, and and those are the ones I'm I'm responsible for. And there we mainly focus on four categories. It's liquid food, it's ice cream, it's powder, 
and its cheese. And, and talking about liquid food, it can be various dairy or, or beverage products, but also soups and sauces, which maybe you should categorize as, as prepared food. And then, of course, ice cream, bulk ice cream, cones, sticks, all that kind of equipment that produces those type of ice creams. And then powder, milk powder, infant formula powders, whey powders, and, and, and also including some very special protein powders. And then we have, of course, the cheese, which is processed fresh, uh, mainly semi-hard cheeses. Within all these categories I mentioned, we, we basically offer fully integrated solutions, also with all the digital needs customers might have, from, of course, the control of, of individual modules up to full integration into customers' ERP systems. And we also have various solutions where we, where we uh, can engage with consumers, full traceability backwards into the full supply chain and, and all, all of these things. Zooming in a little bit then on, on cheese and what we're here to talk about today, I mean, we are the largest provider of equipment and solutions for cheese manufacturing. And we are the only company that can de deliver equipment and solutions across the full production chain uh, when you talk about cheese. I mean, treating the milk through the molding of the cheese into its, its final form. I mean, the, the whole chain there. And so the new center that's opened in Poland, what exactly does the center do for the cheese industry? Could you sort of take me through the facility's various components? Yeah, yeah. So we, so we just inaugurated a, a new plant in, in northern Poland in a, in a city called Olsztyn. A couple of years ago, we actually bought a, a Polish cheese company called Obram. And then, then we decided to build a new factory there to increase the capacity and also be able to, to have a more, uh, a larger center there for the building for the future. So we did a 25 million euro investment to build a new site. And it's not just a production plant. I mean, as I alluded to, we have basically all the competencies needed for, for our cheese business. So uh, it enables us to, to basically deliver full cheese solutions for our customers. And, this is a very good addition to what we already have in, in Holland and in the UK and in the US. So now we, we are even better positioned actually to deliver our different cheese solutions. It, it can be semi-hard cheese, it can be fresh cheeses, cheddars, mozzarella, and other processed cheese solutions. So the site is actually building on our global expertise in cheese, and, and we do everything there. I mean. We do the engineering from cheese making technology and process design, mechanical engineering automation, and and of course all the way through production engineering and, and to the to the actual uh, production. So so it, it, we do everything there basically. Why was Poland selected as the site for the facility, or are there already similar facilities in other countries already? Well, we have a lot of knowledge in, I was already mentioning three countries, especially in, in Holland, in the UK, and in the US. But then we have all of our different market companies around the world where we have cheese specialists sitting as well. But this is one of the four, you could say, main centers for cheese knowledge and cheese application solutions. So we have, of course, used the knowledge we have in other areas 
and both use the knowledge from the acquired company, uh, uh, but also using the knowledge from, from the other uh, locations when we set up this new place. The reason for, for choosing Olsen as, as the new site is, is that, uh, you know, that region of Poland has a great heritage in dairy production. And, and it's also the, in that area you have a lot of our Polish customers. So it was not really a question of cost of labor or anything like that. It was that we have access to good dairy expertise there who work in the region and, and who have studied in the region. And, and it doesn't only include highly qualified engineers, but for example, also top class welders. And, and we should also remember that in, there, in that region, we also have universities and we do collaborate with those universities. And, and the local uh, university in, in Olsen has, for example, also a, a, a food department where they have a small little mini dairy as well. So we, we, can, we can get hold of good trained engineers and, and food application specialists uh, coming out of that university. So we work, we work a lot with, with, with them and that will of course benefit not only our customers in Poland, but, but our customers all around the world. Can you work with your customers all the way through from the concept right the way through to the finished product? Absolutely. So we have the food application knowledge. We have the full-scale engineering capabilities. I mean, I mentioned a little bit about it already from the cheese manufacturing process with, with all the automation, the electrical, the mechanical knowledge up until the production itself. So, so uh, absolutely. And, and with this new, new factory, we also have uh, much better capabilities when it comes to do in-house testing before we send the modules out to the customers. And by that, of course, we can cut down on startup time at customer site. And do your solutions extend to dairy alternatives and cheese substitutes? Yeah, well, we can. It's, it's still, I think, I think it's less than half a percent of, of the total global consumption of cheese. So it's still a small part of the total cheese business. It is, however, growing double digit and it's pr uh, projected to continue to grow double digit into the future. So that, that is an important future segment for us. And yes, the, the answer is that we can, we can do that from this site as well. Obviously, there are lots of regional variations in products. Do the solutions that you provide also vary according to the region? All of us who, who are in the business, I think we know, and also as, as tourists traveling around, we can see there is absolutely regional and market differences when it comes to cheese com consumption. It, it, I mean, it's, the trends are different, the, the preferences are, are different, uh, and also when it comes to legislation, it's different. I mean, it can be anything from texture, hardness, fat content, and different type of ingredients that can or cannot be, be included, and, and so on. And, and we, of course, have solutions for different types of milk be it cow, sheep, or, or, or goat milk, for example. And you asked the question about plant-based. Of course, we can do, do plant-based as well. So the global presence we as a company have, of course, helps us keep track of, of different uh, local trends. And both this site in Poland and our different production development centers around the world help us actually tailor the solution to specific customers. And, while we, of course, use, use our general global knowledge to ensure food safety and quality and consistency and so on in the solution we offer to the customer. 
And how do you see this new facility in Poland developing in the future? This investment leaves room for future expansion as well. And we can actually double the invested capacity fairly easily in that plant uh, if, if we need to. And our cheese business has been doing very well over the last couple of years, both through organic growth, but also through acquired growth. And, and we have gained market share. And I mean, we believe we are the market leader today, and we have a market share of something like 25 to 30%. I mean, the global cheese market is huge. It's around today around 30,000 kilotons, and, it, and it's, I mean, it's not the double-digit growth. It's, it's around 2 to 3% growth projected annually moving forward. Uh, but uh, the big growth will come in the categories where we believe we are very strong, and, and that's in, in the uh, semi-hard cheese and, and the fresh cheese segment. So with all this in mind, we did prepare the site in Poland. If needed, we can easily uh, expand further. And now, continuing the theme of cheese, as if we had somehow miraculously planned the show, we move to cheese tourism. There are plenty of cheese trails in places like Switzerland and France, for example, but one company in the US that takes guests on very special trips is Cheese Journeys. The company is running a special journey next spring to the UK, by which time hopefully it's a bit warmer. Guests will be staying in a stately home in the southwest of England and experiencing lots of different cheeses, and probably rain as well. To tell us more about the experience is founder of Cheese Journeys, Anna Jewell. I first asked her for some background on how she came to be offering cheese tourism. Yeah, well, my background... uh is in project development. Uh, for years, I was a nurse for hospitals and did a lot of different uh, projects for them. But I had a, many people had uh, more than one passion in life and food and cheese was my other one and travel. And so uh, I had a cheese shop for years in Western United States and my children grew up in the business as well. So 20 years ago, selling cut-to-order imported cheeses, I built relationships with a lot of our uh, producers and distributors. And then fast forward years later, I ended up on the East Coast, and it was still something that I, I felt strongly about with cheese and cheese travel, similar to what wine travel is, you know, for a lot of people. But no one had really embraced the reality of could you build a business around artisanal cheese track and sharing that experience with people, not just professionals, but even food enthusiasts. The value of that for me was being able to get people there to see, meet the producers and make the connection, understand the culture and the history and bring that back and enhance their quality of their life, have them be better uh, educated consumers of artisanal food and cheese. And so in 2000. 12 or 13, I took six, eight months and uh, kind of piloted the program, had consulted with a lot of professionals, including St. Hines of the Ozark Dairy in London and others, and said, I think the time is right to build this business. And so that's kind of how it took off. It seems a lot of people say, oh, I've got this great idea, but going from idea to reality is often difficult. You know, it's, uh, it's quite a leap. It is, and it's a huge commitment on time and resources to build a business from the ground up 
And then, you know, you have those early years where you're juggling multiple facets of the business and incrementally adding tours, making adjustments until you get it to where it's, you know, really operational and to a point where it's, you know, it's taking off on it, on its own. So yeah. it's, it's a labor of love. Have you had to make many changes along the way, many adjustments as you go along? Yeah, no, many adjustments. Um, you know, you, you try to assess and really determine who your audience is. How do you reach that audience? A small company starting up have very little marketing, you know, budget to, um, to do that. So I really spent a lot of time with cheese shop owners here in the United States because I felt like their retail customer was also ours. And then also um, the American Cheese Society, of course, where I had an opportunity to meet a lot of cheese makers, people in the dairy industry in the United States wanting an opportunity to go maybe and meet other cheese makers and learn from them. And those became my customers. And so we built that just incrementally. But yeah, and then reassessing the tour, making adjustments as you know, you get feedback from your travelers. It's always um, an ongoing, you know, process. I think. Mm. And, so, where now we have, we have, excuse me, we have five or six uh, European tours. I have several more here in the United States that we're working on. We're, of course, we're heading to Vermont in the spring, but um, the great Northwest out in Oregon and Washington is a favorite what's going on in England, excuse me, Wisconsin, and also California. There's just some great things happening there, too, that we'd like to showcase. But I think, really, I found kind of my niche European because Americans are a little intimidated to go there and travel, and they appreciate that custom curated experience where we took them to areas where they probably would not be able to do on their own. Right. Are they, are they all cheese tours, All even the ones in the U.S. as well, or all cheese? Yeah, my focus is cheese, artisanal, but always with each tour, it's not just about cheese because, I mean, say you get into Northern Italy, you have to spend time and talk about wine and include that. Um, we're up in Vermont, and of course, ciders and beer are a big piece of that tour. And also in England, ciders are, are really you know an important part. So we try to pull a lot of... Um, complimentary foods that you know go along with cheese and highlight and kind of cherry pick what's really special about those areas. I know it's very difficult to define, but what would a typical guest on one of your trips be? They really come from all walks of life. I've had many food enthusiasts. Some of them are lawyers and physicians, semi-retired who you know, have this curiosity about cheese because maybe they entertain, they also like to travel. Maybe they like the, I find physicians often, they like the chemistry of cheese and cheese making. Uh, we have, as I mentioned, a lot of cheese uh, makers in Canada and the U.S. that have traveled with us over five years. I've got um, even just a lot of mongers or cheese professionals in various capacities, whether they're a cheese shop owner and maybe they don't want to go on a distributor trip. They've done that. This time they want to go travel with their spouse. And so they want a, a bit more enhanced experience. You know, we travel with our two French chefs on all my tours over there. And they have an opportunity to take cooking classes and do other things other than kind of only do farm visits, which is sometimes typical of, you know, more distributor focused tours. 
And, and how many in, in a year would you do in the in Europe? Next year, I'm scheduled for five in Europe. Oh, wow. Yeah, England will be in the spring, uh, the end of March, first of April. And that tour is really special because we end up, we start and end in London, but we spend the whole time pretty much out in Somerset at Jamie Montgomery's uh, Manor House there in North Cadbury Court. And then I host a huge event uh, where we bring in about 12 or 15 of some of Britain's top cheesemakers, and we do panel tastings, we do a dinner event, and then they stay uh, the following morning. And I travel with a friend of mine who I just, he's just remarkable, um, Mike Gino, who is a, an artist, a professional artist, who found his niche painting cheese. And so a few years back, we added an art class, painting cheese, if you can imagine. <laughs> to our tour as well, and it's just super fun. And then we have a tour set for Northern Italy, and then I'll be in France in the Alpine regions of Savoie and Azura twice next year, and then back uh, in the fall, Netherlands and Belgium. It's obviously quite the undertaking because it's not just like a regular package tour. There's an awful lot involved with a trip like this. Yeah, there is a lot of logistics, um, especially traveling with our chefs. We, I spend uh, a lot of personal time with them as we develop the menus, the itineraries, the schedules, uh, working with you know local foods and produce, incorporating cheese into our menus. They do cooking classes. Uh, we'll do wine, uh, winery visits. So there is a lot of planning that goes in um, to each tour, and often. When I'm not traveling, I'm just as busy behind the scenes, you know, through the fall and winter months, uh, doing, you know, related, you know, things that need to get done before our tours are set for the following year. Yeah, and of course, I, I'm thinking of things like not just the actual tour and when you're on tour, but there's when you have a large group, there's getting through airport security and there's getting everybody, just making sure that it all runs smoothly. Yeah, no, it has to be, like you said, um, all those little details uh, planned out because if we have challenges where delays happen or logistical problems, transportation issues, then everything in the whole tour gets impacted. So we work pretty hard to keep all those details, you know, um, just moving along. And I, I can't say enough about, you know, usually I travel with a co-host, uh, that's a great help to me. And then also my two chefs who behind the scenes are um, involved with a lot of the planning. We hire, oftentimes we have to hire and coordinate local uh, staff. There's hundreds of emails that go out to cheese makers, you know, when we're going to visit them and the nuances of what, what do we want to take home from that experience with cheese makers and try to get them prepared as best we can for our group coming in. And then sometimes we don't always know what our group is going to look like. So if a, a group looks like it's more um, cheese professionals versus enthusiasts, then I often can go in and kind of tweak the tour a little bit just to enhance and match up the experience a little, as close as possible. So it's, all, it's a big jigsaw puzzle, you know, from the time we start until we finish the tour. But I love the, the experience of literally when people who maybe – have a lot of experience with cheese, can go on a tour, spend time with, you know, our group and what we do, and they come home and they say it was life-altering. I still get artisanal food. I get 
artisanal cheese now, why it's so special. And that's a rewarding experience. And I think that's probably what keeps us doing what we do. You know, mm. it's kind of crazy. Do you take feedback as well as comments? I mean, do you ask people what they thought in terms of the, your ability to change things for future trips? Definitely. So we sent a Google survey, you know, um, to them that I customize for each trip so that we get um, a chance to really hear, you know, their thoughts and comments, what they like, what they could, we could do better. Those to me are critical things. Um, and of course, because I'm traveling on the tours with them, I have an opportunity to really hear personally as, you know, we sit down every dinner at night, you know, talking, you know, you, you get that very close relationship with your travelers and often even months or years later, they, they'll write to me or we'll, we'll say, can we redo that tour? Can we do a reunion? Can we get that group together? And this is what we'd like to do. These were our favorite experiences. And so those are kind of fun things to see happen now after we've been doing it a number of years. And for this upcoming trip to the UK, do you still have spaces available? We do. That tour is a little bit bigger than typically most of my tours are about 12 to 14. We can take up to almost 20 guests on that tour because we're just staying at the, the beautiful manor house in the Cadbury court. And it has 25 bedrooms, if you can imagine. <laughs> so typically one of the signature things about a cheese journey is that I like to take over a property where people don't always have to just be in a hotel all the time. And they can have that experience where the chefs in the kitchen preparing meals for them. And we settle in. You get a feel for what it's like to live in a manor house, you know. And that house is pretty remarkable. So there's, um, you know, a bit bigger group. And it works out nice. Do you have any plans to do tours to places that you've not been to yet? Oh, Spain is on my radar. I have had numerous people request a, a tour in Spain. There's so much there. It's a big region. I need to get over and do some exploring. I'm working on a project right now in Switzerland too, which is really amazing. So I think those two in Europe, you know, are pretty remarkable future trips that we can kind of roll out. But, you know, there's often over a year, if not longer, in planning a tour. And then I usually release them almost a year in advance. So we work with that kind of long-term schedule. Now it's over to DSM in the Netherlands, who also featured in the news this week. Only for this interview with Mark van Nieuwland, Programme Director, the subject is a methane inhibitor, Bovair, which will help farmers and dairy cooperatives, for example, reduce their carbon footprints. But rather than me telling you all about it, I'll leave that to Mark. So the, the journey started about uh, 10 years ago, when as DSM we looked at... Uh, our innovation portfolio and what are some of the challenges of the future and one of them was focused around climate change uh, and then somebody uh, basically said well hey cows produce quite a bit of methane we should take this into account and that's uh, when the innovation project got uh, started 10 years ago i think it's a lot more relevant today given uh, the debate that we have of course around global warming so it was well uh, thought through uh, 10 years ago and i guess we were a bit lucky on the time side 
and how did it come about? Yeah, so the, the how is then really focused on uh, the, a group of people came together and, and looked at, okay, how is methane produced uh, in a cow and in a cow's rumen? What can we potentially do to inhibit, stop, pause, uh, whatever it would be, uh, that process? And uh, how could we do so, of course, safely for the cow and then the productivity that comes out of the cow? And that's where it all started. And then uh, putting the bright signs together, they found uh, a product which could work about two years after the original start, which has then been extensively tested in all kinds of situations. So we now test this in 35 trials globally, uh, and it works in all those conditions. Uh, and now we commence registration and hope to be in the market late 2020. It seems like quite a short time frame. Yeah, well, it's 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 a ten-year uh, journey, so it's it's long in that sense. Uh, I think it's short for something that's completely novel. Yeah. Uh, so it depends with which lens we look at it. And as you said, it's something that you have to be really careful with, not just the safety and and the welfare of the animals, but also that you that you're not creating even more problems in terms of the, the dung that comes out of the cows. That it's not creating other issues. Exactly. So we look at it from all kinds of different angles. So how do we produce it? If the production footprint, of course, is uh, what, what would that be uh, to make sure that that's substantially lower than the savings? You look at the animal and the animal performance. You look at the products that come out of the animal uh, and all the, the other aspects that come with that. And all of those you need to test and understand what's happening and why it's happening. And that takes time. Does yeah, and, and what were the preliminary results that came out of the small study? Were they promising, or did you have to do any adjustment along the way? To our great surprise, also uh, the the product worked as of the first instance, which was good news. It actually worked more effectively than we anticipated, which is also a bit of a surprise. Since then, we understand why this is the case. Thereafter, it's more or less proving and convincing that it works in different diets with different types of cows, uh, etc. Um, because that's where the key questions then come along. So that we've now extensively proven. We are the the first form that we bring to market is very much focused on TMR and PMR kind of diets. Um, now we're looking at other rations and other feeding systems, how to also soil uh, for those. And I think we're well advanced with that. So it's really around form development and new applications that we're now targeting our research work. And, and there are no side effects at all to this uh, this process? Nope, there's no no side effects. Very good news. And what kind of reductions in methane were you getting from these studies? Yeah, so for the, in the studies, we went uh, as high up as, as 80%. Uh, now, we also, of course, tested certain situations with, uh, with higher dosages just to understand what would happen there. From a commercial perspective, we're targeting that the product that we launched would at least uh, reduce methane by, by 30%. And is it something that would be cost effective for farmers to do, or is it something that would require like government subsidies to farmers, that kind of thing? Our target is that it would at least break even for a farmer. Okay. And I think that the, the, how that would work would differ by country, different by scheme, but uh, that's the overall ambition because we also realize that farmers have a difficult time and a very thin bottom line, and putting the uh, full burden uh, on them doesn't make a lot of sense. With all the testing that you've done, how would those results apply in different circumstances, such as different climates, etc.? So it would have the, the same effect potential. I mean, methane is driven by uh, 
the, the how much a cow eats, uh, of course, and also by the, the ration composition. And then thereafter, there's different inclusion rates of our product. Uh, but we feel that with the range that we have, we can reach uh, the 30% reduction in all those types of systems. Okay, so it would just be a case of if the diet's different, then the dosage will be different? Exactly, yes. It's okay. exactly that. And and how long are the studies going to be that you're doing with uh, Wageningen? Uh, so the study with Wageningen will be several months. Uh, and, and that's just one of the studies in total. We've done 35 studies to date, uh, with the longest being over a year. So there is the studies, I guess, are still ongoing in, in many different places? Yes, exactly. So we continuously have uh, four or five different studies running. I think it's also important to realize that those studies by themselves have we already saved uh, 1,500 tons of CO2 equivalent. And uh, I think if you look at uh, a dairy cow, we can save roughly uh, a ton of CO2 equivalents per cow per year. So that also gives a bit of the magnitude of the work that has been done to date. And so there's no issues or potential issues with the product entering into the milk supply or affecting the animals in any other way? No, so the, the product works basically uh, at the moment. It in, so the, the methane is formed uh, through enzymatic pathway. One of those enzymes we actually inhibit, the very last step in the process. And when it does so, our product actually falls apart into natural compounds that are already available or are already in the cow. Uh, and therefore, that explains also why we don't find those traces of the product. You mentioned 2020. Is that when the product will be available commercially? Okay. That's, that's what we anticipate. It's a bit, uh, we're in the regulatory approval process. Those timelines are always a bit fluid. But we uh, anticipate to be in the first markets either late 2020 or early 2021. What market will that be? Will that be global or in just specific countries initially? Uh, so we have filed for registration in Europe. Um, so those that would likely be a first one. We will commence filing shortly in uh, some of the Latin American markets. Uh, and we are looking how to register also in New Zealand. Uh, so those are uh, some of the markets that are higher on that priority list or higher on the first list to, to come to market. Is this something that you'll continue to work on? Yeah, so uh, we we uh, continue to work on this, uh, creating new forms, new formulations, applications to reach as many farmers as we can. And that's also the, the strategy with our regulatory process. So. It's new that there's feed additives which have a benefit for the environment. Uh, unfortunately, some of the geographies don't have that classification in their regulatory system. That's one of the reasons why we file in Europe first, uh, but then expand very quickly globally thereafter. Would this apply to milk from other animals as well, such as sheep and goats? So, so it works with all ruminants. So we showed it works with goats, it works with uh, sheep, it would also work with deer, it works with the beef industry. The reason why we start on the dairy side uh, and also with beef uh, is really we see that's where the largest proportion of methane emissions comes from. So that's one. Secondly, I think from a sustainability perspective, uh, there's a large number of dairy companies that have made statements and targets set uh, that they want to reduce their methane emissions. And therefore, uh, we feel there's a welcoming environment to commence there. Methane is such a, a it's very short-lived, it's very potent. So whatever we do will have an effect already in our lifetimes. Where I think in many of the measures around carbon dioxide, we absolutely need to do. But it takes uh, probably the ch our children or the children thereafter to actually see the benefits thereof, which of course is important. But I think uh, having an impact in your own lifetime uh, makes a big difference as well. 
And now it's over to Dublin for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from INTL FC Stone. Butter stayed in line with the general bullishness we see in the dairy market at the moment. It was also helped during the week by the GDT. Uh, this week, prices finished up around 1.7% overall, primarily pushed by whole milk powder and skim milk powder, despite some weakness in the fats. The buying on the GDT seems to have largely been um, from Southeast Asia, Europe and Africa. Uh, but this also, I guess, continues to be in line with what looks like strong global demand for dairy. Butter in quarter one was up about eighty euros to thirty seven seventy, quarter two up about forty euros to thirty seven ninety, and quarter three and four uh, up about twenty five euros to thirty eight twenty five and thirty eight fifty respectively. Skimmel powder also continues to remain bullish. Quarter one was up about fifty euros to twenty six hundred, quarter two up about seventy five euros to twenty six twenty five. And quarter three was also stronger by 65 euros to 26.30, with quarter four completing the carry in the forward curve at 26.50, up about 50 euros on the week. Whey was also a bit stronger, up about 15 euros to maybe the 7.75 level. Thanks, Liam. We'll talk to you again next week and see if Black Friday made any difference to the markets. INTL FC Stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it for another week. We do have some interviews already lined up for next time, which is a whole lot better than silence, or even worse, me talking for half an hour. I'm done with travel for the rest of the year, so I can't even talk about that. Well, I suppose I could talk about next year's events. As always, we love to hear from you, so if there are shows that you would recommend, of course, please let me know. We're always happy to go to new places, and we also do site visits. Those are quite enjoyable as well. I think next year I'm probably going on site visits to the Netherlands, as well as possibly to Greece and Cyprus, although it's a bit early to be thinking about those. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this week's show. Please join us again next time, and until then, have a great week, and thanks for listening. 